0: Welcome to Locally Sourced Joey. I'm your host, Joey Held, and today chatting with Robert Kerbeck, author of the terrific book Malibu Burning that covers the Woolsey fires that devastated so much of Southern California. And Robert's book does such a great job of telling the stories of some of the people who were involved, including himself. This man is a real-life firefighter uh, just thrown into the thick of things there. Robert talks about turning his story into a, at first an article and then a book and just all all the great stories that he's learned while putting this book together. And of course, he's done a lot more than just that too. He was in an exercise video with O.J. Simpson. He has been on a Star Trek card. I mean, there's a lot of cool things in here. Roberts appeared in over 50 TV and film roles as well as an actor before turning to writing. And we're going to cover all of that. But you know, I could, I could heap praise on until I'm blue in the face, but the conversation's way more interesting than that. So let's hop onto it. Your initial piece in the LA Times gave me the sense of like gravity of the situation. Can you kind of take us into that moment of being on the ground and essentially being a firefighter when these fires first broke out?
1: Yeah. um, Well, uh, you know, I think one of the things that happened for for me and and I think for a lot of people uh, uh, that were in Malibu and the areas that were affected by the Woolsey Fire in November of last year, 2018, uh, was that nobody knew the fire was going to be that bad. Um, It was the worst fire in Los Angeles history, um, by far, Um, 100,000 acres burned, um, nearly 2,000 homes were lost um, people died. And so, um, nobody, nobody really expected that the fire department didn't expect that. And so, uh, you know, I was kind of, you know, out in my tool shed in the morning, even though we knew a fire was coming, I was in my tool shed, doing a little this, doing a little that. And, and, you know, we loaded up the cars and we got out our fire equipment, you know, our fire pump, um, and our hoses and, you know, so that we were prepared. Uh, but when the fire came over the horizon, um, two streets above us, uh, I mean it was just a monster i mean it was you know just i can't even describe how huge it was how bright it was and within you know minutes you know fireballs were flying around us and um, we were uh, basically spraying um, a fire retardant on our on our home called foscheck um, which is the same chemical that the firefighters use you know we test it every year um, we would, you know, fire, you know, turn on the fire pump and spray the FOS check. And, you know, so we were, you know, we were, you know, I, I tell people we were um, somewhat prepared, but completely inexperienced. Um, so, you know, we had done our homework, um, but, you know, we had never been in a fire before, and this was not your ordinary fire. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was, um it was pretty frightening, but we didn't have a lot of time to be frightened because it was so fast. You know, it was so fast. Um, we just, you know, my wife was really, you know, kind of the calm, cool and collected one. And she was the one working the fire hose. My son and I had garden hoses and we were just trying to keep everything wet, but she was the one on the fire hose spraying all of our foliage and, um, the house with this, um, foam, this Foscheck. Um, and we have a all wood Victorian house. So if any home, on our street and in our neighborhood should have burned. It would have been ours Uh, on our street. 17 of 19 homes burned to the ground in our neighborhood. uh, Approximately 180 out of 275 were destroyed. And so I think that that FOS check and we had good brush clearance. I think those
0: two things saved us. Yeah, I was going to ask if you even had time to kind of, you know, be frozen to the ground or if it was just immediately like, hey, we got to, we got to act like that. And it sounds like uh, the quick response is, yeah, what, what saved your house?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things, you know, in California now, you know, um, we're having this epidemic of wildfires in the last month. You know, um, you know, anywhere in the United States, you were reading about these wildfires in California. The Ronald Reagan Museum, uh, a library almost burned down. The Getty Museum almost burned down. My mother was evacuated from one fire. My brother, who lives in a completely different area of L.A., was evacuated from another fire. Um, four of the worst 10 fires in California history have occurred in the last two years, and with climate change um, and, you know, the California uh, landscape getting drier and drier and warmer and warmer, we're going to have more of these events, not fewer, unfortunately, and so I think it's really important um, not only for agencies to do better the fire department and uh, the water department but homeowners because you know in the case of the Woolsey fire you know the fire that hit us there were no firefighters um and you know so basically you know the locals called the fire the yo-yo fire for you're on your own and and, you know, I think that there are things homeowners can do even if they don't want to stay and defend their house. Um, you know, they can do those things in advance before a fire and give their their home a much better chance of surviving.
0: Absolutely. And the gravity and, and sort of expansive size of this, I think, is maybe a little harder for people to comprehend. So I think that's great that you wrote Malibu Burning. Was that something that you kind of like as this was happening, you're like, oh, this is a bigger story. I need to turn it into a book. Or was there like a moment when you're like, this needs to be bigger than than what it currently is?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I, it was never a thought in my mind to write a book. It was never a thought in my mind to even write the Los Angeles Times essay. Um, and, you know, part of me with things like boy, Robert, if you really want to be a writer, you might want to be thinking about these things more, you know, utilizing your real life. But it was never a thought in my head. The fire was on a Friday. Um, On Monday, the New York Times sent me an email and said, hey, you know, know, we know you live in Malibu. We know you run this writer's group, the Malibu Writer's Circle, and... uh, You know, uh, do you know any good fire stories? Maybe you want to write a fire story for us. And I said, well, funny you should ask. (laughs) My (laughs) wife and son and I saved our house. Um, And we have some crazy video, and it was pretty intense. And so I started writing this essay for the New York Times. And the short version of the story is the Los Angeles Times published it. Um, It was called The Accidental Firefighter. And that was it. You know, um, I wrote that essay, got a lot of attention, people said a lot of nice things, but that was it. You know, I didn't think about writing anything else, and, and even though our house survived, we had a lot of smoke damage, um, so we couldn't live in our house for a couple of months. And we were staying at, at first at my mom's, and then we were staying at a hotel, and a friend of mine came over one day, and he said, you know, we, we, we have to write something about this fire. We have to write something about this fire. You know, we, we, we gotta write, you know, write something. I said, well, 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 you know, we, you know, we got to write, you know, our stories. And I said, well, you know, my story, I, I kind of wrote it already. And it, it's really, well, how, how much, how much could that be? One chapter in a book, you know, and he said, well, you know, we could, you know, interview all these people and get all these stories. And I said, nah, I said, I don't, I, I, I don't know how to do that. I've never done that. I've never, you know, I've published a, many short stories and essays and I've written a play and, and one of my short stories got made into a movie and I co-wrote the screenplay. But, you know. You know, interviewing people, all of a sudden it was turning into investigative journalism and you know, I hadn't done that and so I told my friend, no, you know, no. And um, sometime in late January a publisher reached out and they said, hey, you know, we're we're looking for a book on the California wildfires, you know, would you be interested in writing something? And because my friend had kind of put the idea in my head when the publisher reached out, now I I felt like, okay, well now you have to consider doing this, you know, you can't say no to the New York publisher. And um, so, you know, I said yes, and I started, you know, interviewing people and, um, and at first, quite frankly, I don't think I was very good at it. I mean, I do really like people. I like talking to people and I do feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I have some skill at getting people to open up, um, but I just didn't really know how to write it and, you know, and, and tell this ginormous story and, you know, asking people to talk about the worst day of their lives, the worst moments of their lives. Um, and finally, after maybe I butchered five or six interviews, I realized I had to write each chapter as a short story and just tell basically beginning, middle, and end of this person's story, you know, their moment in time in the fire. And once I had that, because you know, like I said, I've written many short stories, and I feel like that's a form I really know well, but then I was off to the races, and then the book just kind of
0: just really moved
1: and, and went great.
0: Did you end up using any of the uh... – those first five or six interviews, or did you kind no. of go
1: back to those? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I ruined them. I, I put a note in the acknowledgements. Uh, I said, you know, uh, there were so many stories, everybody's story, you know, everybody had a story to tell about this fire and they were all great stories. And I just basically said, I apologize if I, if I didn't get your story in here, it was because I, I couldn't figure it out. It was on me. Um, and I hope to tell it maybe someday in the future, you know? Um, but Yeah, those first couple ones. And I I started to learn things, too, that as soon as I interviewed someone, I had to write their story immediately while it was fresh. And I'm I'm a morning writer, so that's my writing time. And then so I had to learn I could only schedule interviews in the late afternoon or evening, so I would write all day and then I would do interviews in the late afternoon or evening, but I couldn't do too many interviews in a row because then I didn't have the time to write them up. And then sometimes if I did like two interviews back to back nights, then all of a sudden one of those interviews i kind of lost the momentum cuz i didn't write it up immediately you know it was it was you know stephen king talks about that in his book on writing he talks about you got to get the skeleton down right away before you even think about it you know cuz if you start thinking about it then you in a weird sort of way start censoring yourself or or criticizing yourself and and somehow the story loses its power you just got to get it out right away no matter how bad or rough it is if you get that form out that skeleton that kind of a to z um, and I have found that to be very true for me in writing. That once I have a beginning, middle, and an end, no matter how rough, no matter how bad, I know I, ha- I know I can work with it. I know I can make something out of it.
0: And I think interviewing is just a general good skill for, I would say, every writer to have. So what what would be like on top of like getting that out right away? What of the actual interview process? did you think ended up being most beneficial for you? Was it like the way you'd position a question or, or you know, a, a sense of timing and like not talking right after they finished talking or anything like that?
1: You know, I think the big thing that really helped me and helped the people that I interviewed is that I live here, you know, this is my home, you know, my son you know, has gone to all the public schools, um, and also even more importantly, we fought the fire. And so when I'm interviewing somebody who lost everything that they'd ever had uh, or somebody that you know, put themselves in harm's way to save neighbors and, and communities, it was like I had skin in the game. And so people trusted me. Um, and I think that was the thing that enabled people to really tell me these you know, basically about the worst moments of their lives. And it also enabled people to open up and tell me things, you know, some of the agencies maybe things that they, they shouldn't have told me, uh, or things that you know um, were, were controversial. Um, and so I think that was the thing. I mean, I only had one person, and in this case it was an entity, one person turned me down for an interview, and that was Southern California Edison. And Southern California Edison, for your listeners, was responsible for the Woolsey fire. Their equipment failed and started the fire. They just admitted that recently um and they're now paying out lawsuits because they have finally admitted um you know uh, that their equipment uh was responsible and unfortunately in california this is a very common thing um southern california edison um has the power um for much of south uh southern california and pg and E is the entity in northern california and pg and e was responsible their equipment failed and started the campfire um which um, burned at the exact same time as the Woolsey Fire. Um, so as if it wasn't bad enough to have um, one of the worst fires in California history, the Camp Fire was the worst fire in California history, and they were both burning at the same time.
0: So are these companies outside of you know paying, paying back lawsuits, it sounds like, are they enacting any changes to try and limit or prevent these in the future?
1: That's a great question. They are, yeah, they are. Um, some of them are, I think, great. Uh, you know, one of the things that they've been doing, which just seems to be common sense, is they're um, trimming the trees around their equipment. Um, and for years, you know, we would see the the power company, you know, tree trimmers come out and they would cut the trees that are directly below the power lines to an inch or two inches below the power lines. And it always struck me as kind of ludicrous because, you know, trees grow. And so you're you're cutting it down an inch or two inches. By the time you get back out here again, those trees are now all amongst the lines. And when the strong winds blow, which that's one of the things that, that gets these fires so that they get out of control, we get these winds in the fall. In Southern California, we call them Santa Ana winds. They blow 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. Um, they're very strong. They're very hot winds, and they, you know, knock down power poles. They knock down uh, lines. They, you know, move trees that hit lines um, that knock down the lines. So it just always struck me that the, the trees should be either completely removed from anywhere near telephone poles and telephone lines, or at least cut way, you know, much lower, so that if the if the power company doesn't happen to come out for a while the trees are still way below these lines and that's finally what they have started to do is they've really cut these trees much much lower um so that's been a really positive thing um and then they're also doing this thing where they shut off the power when when wind events are predicted and that's become quite a controversial thing because they literally shut off the entire power to huge sections of um you know uh, communities you know so recently we had a power shut off here and um, you know most of malibu lost power um, because what they don't want is they don't want their equipment to fail and these lines to spark a fire and of course if they shut off the power the lines are de-energized so there's no electricity in the line to start a fire well as you can imagine that means people don't have electricity you know so you can't You know, you can't watch TV, you can't, you know, uh, use your computer, you can't, uh, you know, and if you're if you have any sort of medical issue and you need, you know, electricity to run your oxygen machine or whatever it is, you, you don't have power. And so it's been very controversial. Also, traffic lights, things that, you know, I think that Edison didn't even think about the traffic lights are out. So now you're creating Um, unsafe driving conditions because all of the traffic lights are out. So it's a really uh, inelegant solution that Edison has come up with to try to prevent these fires. But I think their equipment, they just don't have a good handle on, you know, what could fail. And um, so right now that's, I think what they have to do. And and I'm hoping, and I know the residents of California, because they're doing the same thing up North with PG&E. And I think the residents are really hoping that these utility utilities get their equipment so that it's not breaking down all the time um, so that they don't have to do this. They don't have to shut off um, these you know, huge sections of, of uh, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of homes um, just to make sure their equipment doesn't fail and start a fire.
0: I'm just trying to like process how all of this works in tandem and it's, it definitely sounds like I, they're trying, but there's still a little more work to be done.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, PG&E is, you know, they have also been, you know, sued and, um, you know, I mean, both of these utilities, they have started fire after fire after fire. And um, something's got to change. I mean, the, the, the state of California did pass a bill recently, um, you know, talking about a lot of this stuff because they realize, you know, we've got this epidemic of wildfires and many of them. And, um, you know, even most of them are started by the utility companies.
0: And just going back to Malibu Burning, I, and, and each story may be like individual children to you and you can't pick a favorite, but what, is there a story that made it into the book that really stands out to you or that uh, people that give you feedback on the book are like, oh, that was one that like, I'll remember forever. So the
1: book, you know, it's these 24 different chapters is the first chapter is, you know, my wife, son and I saving our house. The second chapter is a chapter of the history of Malibu and wildfires in Malibu. And then the other 22 chapters are all different people's stories. But what's what I really liked about writing the book is because this is my hometown, because I lived here, a lot of times these were people that I knew or I knew of or had connections to. And so, you know, I like, you know, people talk about the book being part investigative journalism and part memoir, because, you know, I pop into the story here and there, my son pops into the story here and there, um, one, and one of the chapters, um, is this chapter of this, um, young girl, Nina, who, um, was in the theater group with my son. Uh, she was a senior when the Woolsey fire struck. My son was a sophomore and they had done a number of plays together. And, um, she, uh, lost her home. Um, they evacuated at three in the morning. She took nothing. And so she lost the only bedroom she'd ever had, you know, it was the only home, you know, that she'd ever lived in and she lost everything, you know, every stitch of clothing, every drawing, you know, um, all her music, um, you know, everything. And my son, you know, our house is the only home my son has ever lived in. And so you know, of course, I was really thinking about, wow, what, what what would it have been like for my son? And so when I was interviewing this young woman, she was very kind, but I mean, she was devastated by the experience. And she said things that really broke my heart. Um, at one point, she said to me that the experience made her never want to have children, Wow, um, which, which I found like just the most staggering thing. Uh, I mean, even now, just remembering that I was just like, Jesus. And... Um, And and that chapter, as sad as that story is, it it ended up having a a positive message because these kids that were in this um, theater group, they were uh, supposed to do this production of this play called Spring Awakening. It's a musical. It's been on Broadway and um, really good musical and great for young people because the characters in the musical are young people, unlike, you know, if they're doing, you know, like. Chicago or Oklahoma or whatever you know the characters are all different ages but in this show that all the main characters are young and so the the kids were really into the show they loved the show but the show was supposed to go up a week after the fire and obviously the fire came so the show was cancelled then they tried to put the show up again we had mudslides so the show was cancelled again and yet they kept rehearsing nobody quit even though a number of the kids had lost their homes and so it was just for me a great story about how the resilience of, of, the, of the children of the community—that they would not um, give up the show—and if any one of the kids had quit because they had spent so much time rehearsing, you know, nobody could be replaced. You know, it was just too late. And yet, not one kid quit, despite all of the trials and tribulations. And when they finally got to do the show, and they only got to do it one night because. It had been canceled so many times. It was just so late in the school year and there just weren't dates available and they only got to do one performance. They rehearsed the show for like six months. Um, the entire city showed up to cheer those kids on and that was just a beautiful, beautiful moment.
0: That's uh, It's themes like that that I think, I know you've mentioned a couple of times that you know you were, you're in Malibu and it's all these people who are there, but I mean, I'm halfway across the country and I think that's a thing that, can resonate with anyone and and why I enjoyed the book, even though I wasn't there and didn't live through it, but you, I, I think the investigative journalism mixed with memoir is a really nice way of putting it, is that you are kind of, you know, you're diving into these hard hitting stories, but you have a, a nice like affection and, and kindness and just genuineness about it. And you can sprinkle in humor too. I, I remember the Nina chapter and I enjoyed that. Uh, you said with all due respect to your son's one line, in the play. <laughs>
1: yeah, that. yeah. Yeah. I know my, my son, uh, Nina was the lead in the show and my son had one line and I said, with all due respect to my son's one line, Nina was the best actor on that stage. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, and, and a, a humor is something that I, I write with naturally. Um, I like to write with humor. Um, I, you know, I, I enjoy that. And, um, it was a real challenge in this book, um, to, You know, I mean, I knew going in writing this book, I was not going to write with the humor that I would normally write with. But I also knew that that's something that I'm good at. And I also felt that, you know, when you're telling a story that oftentimes is sad, you have to find the moments that are funny, you know, um, and and are hopeful. And so I tried to do that um, in a way that, you know, was still respectful to the story, but also, you know, gives the reader a little bit of of relief, um, so to speak.
0: And I think that segues nicely because I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on other aspects of your career, um, because although Malibu Burning is your first full-length book, you've done plenty. <laughs> you've done plenty of your life. Um, and the, the first thing I remember reading of yours, which I believe you shared in YouPod, our writing group, uh, or maybe Book Pod, one of the two, but you um, did an exercise video with O.J. Simpson.
1: And <laughs> I Joey, remember come on now.
0: Yeah, I remember you had written about it, and and just kind of like that whole whole experience. And this was, you know, shortly before Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman murders. And it it just seems like such a surreal experience, kind of. And I again like the description of you saying you're in the background, looking like you were the one that committed the crimes. Right, right, right. Uh, so how did how did this all come to be? Was the exercise very hard it looks like perhaps it's not the most challenging thing in the video but but who knows it's so hard to-
1: <laughs> well uh you yeah, know i was this was uh boy i guess this was right The 90 or early 90s you know you'd think i'd remember these dates but um yeah it was the early 90s i was an actor in los angeles you know i worked a you know pretty good amount i did like you know 50 major uh, lead roles in, in big tv shows melrose place and ER and sisters and Chicago hope and, um, NYPD blue. And, and my manager called one day and he said, Hey, you know, um, um, my wife is directing an exercise video and, um, they need some guys, uh, you know, pays great money and, uh, you get free sneakers. (laughs) And I said, you know, sign me up. Uh, you know, you know, I thought it was an exercise video we were going to be playing basketball or I don't know, you know, I didn't know it was, you know, aerobics, um, and uh, but then he told me he was O.J. Simpson and I said oh well you might you know he was my hero you know i mean I, I loved you know you know football and i loved him and i even loved him as an actor believe it or not um he was in this movie Capricorn 1 which i thought was fantastic um yeah so i showed up there and um somehow made it through because you know it was really aerobics and i was just pathetic at it and they <laughs> threw me in the back and the choreographer i think wanted to throw me out the door And as the days went on, we shot over a couple of days, um, OJ really, for some reason, really took a liking to me and really befriended me and was very kind. And um, he's a very gregarious guy. Um, um, But at the same time he was befriending me, he was sexually harassing a blonde woman who was also in the video um, and sexually harassing her in a way that today seems almost incomprehensible. Um, And it it seems incomprehensible to me that nobody said anything on the set, the director was a woman, she said nothing, and the only one that said anything was me. And all I did, and I didn't even do that much, is I went up to the woman, he was sexually harassing, and I said, look, you know, are you okay? we can call the Screen Actors Guild and have somebody come down here and we can make him stop. And she said, no, no, it's okay. I'm used to it. You know, you know, um, and, um, and that was it. And, um, you know, he continued to sexually harass her. And and then a week later, uh, he murdered, uh, you know, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, in my humble opinion.
0: Wow. That's uh, yeah. Just a week, a week beforehand. And did, I mean, I don't don't know if we want to get down this road of speculation, but outside of the sexual harassment, which is obviously not a good thing and you don't want to see, did you get any sort of other indication of, you know, like a violent tendency or anything like that?
1: Well, uh, I'll tell you this, you know, and they're having us do the exercise video. And um, later, the exercise video was introduced into evidence in the trial. Um, And... One of the things his defense team was claiming was that O.J. was so arthritic and infirm from his years of playing football that there's no way that he could have murdered these two people. And I want to tell you, when we shot that video, I was, you know, whatever, late 20s and uh, in basically the best possible shape I could be in. And O.J. Simpson, you know, because at some point we had to do push-ups and we were doing push-ups and O.J. Simpson did push-ups like they were nothing. I mean, he was so much stronger. Uh, than I was. um, And I'm six foot one and weighed 185 pounds then. And like I said, was in great shape. And O.J. Simpson, I'm sure, could have murdered me. Um, He was that much stronger, bigger, thicker. Um, So, um, so I'm quite confident he had the ability to murder two people. In terms of seeing any violence, I didn't. What I did see was a guy that was used to doing whatever he wanted and getting whatever he wanted especially in terms of women and it was striking to me how much the woman um in the exercise video resembled nicole brown simpson and of course i didn't know it in the time but later on i recognized that was his type like that blonde kind of bombshell was his type and i could only imagine that um you know if you know his wife, or I guess it was his ex-wife at the time, wasn't doing what he wanted, um, and he was, you know, upset with her in some way, I could see him getting upset um, because he just was used to having his way with women, and, and you know, and where that might lead, I could only speculate, but, you know, I think that's what happened.
0: Wow, and trying to segue to a little a little uh, happier time, I guess, um, you also have your own Star Trek card. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. is yeah. probably maybe the only time in history someone's got from OJ Simpson to Star Trek collectibles um how, how did how did that happen did you get to have any input in the card or was it kind of a surprise to see it come to come out it was world?
1: it was a complete surprise because you know I didn't really have like any you know major role uh but uh, I was in this episode of uh, Deep Space Nine called The Defiant, which I guess the Trekkies consider to be one of the best episodes of that series. And um, for some reason, the, the whoever makes those decisions about cards, they chose my character to make a card of. And apparently there are three types of cards, um, common, uncommon, and rare. And my card is a rare
0: card. Ooh.
1: Yeah. Nice. which makes it worth, I think it goes for about $2 now. Whoa. um Which might not seem like a lot, but I think in the card world, $2 is, you know, it's not cheap.
0: Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty yeah. good. I'm I'm thinking back to my, I used to play uh, Magic the Gathering pretty regularly. And I remember when I was selling a bunch of my cards, I'm like, oh, I have so many rares. I'll get some great money for this. And it's like, no, nope, a lot of these are like 10 or 20 cents top. So yeah, $2 right. is pretty solid. Yeah, it's solid, yeah. Do you know if the card is is good in I mean I assume in like a a battle sense. I saw I saw some numbers on there but I don't really know what they are.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I know they they rank my character's intelligence, strength and something else and the numbers were not very impressive. I was I was I was a little disappointed with my numbers.
0: That's <laughs> right, you're still on a card, which is more than the most of us could say.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I got a lot of grief uh, about that card at various points in my career, you know, showing up to the uh, Tin House Literary Conference, you know, where you've got all these famous, you know, you know writers and, you know, really smart people. And, uh, and I found out later that the powers that be had found that image of me from that Star Trek card and kind of were, you know, passing it around the office <laughs> you know, when they when when they heard I was coming, they they didn't get a lot of guys, you know, coming to this literary conference that had, had a Star Trek card.
0: <laughs> so you were probably the most popular one there. Then after that,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Popular. I guess the question is, is was it a good way or a bad way? But um, but it was fun. They, they they were it was it was all in good good spirits.
0: Nice. That's that's yeah. That's just a cool cool little tidbit of trivia. I also enjoy on your website that you say, and, and you mentioned earlier you've been in fifty or so TV shows and movies. So, and you enjoy the residual checks that keep coming, even though you've retired more than twenty yes, years well, now. Know, yeah, well, you know, my
1: son gets those checks now. One of the deals I made when he was a little kid was I was going to put all those checks into a fund for his college. Um, so I don't even get to spend that money anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but you you know the children are our future and all that so uh, yeah
1: yeah and it's it's you know it's it's a good thing it's a yeah. good thing and
0: are you are you able to say what uh, what role has the best residual checks
1: uh it you know, probably is star trek it probably is star trek yeah yeah um you know p- people just you know the, the, you know that franchise you know just keeps going and um the trekkies are you know amazingly loyal um, fans, you know, and they have, they have, uh, you know, conventions, I've been invited to go to a couple of conventions, I haven't ever gone to a convention, just because, you know, I'm really focusing on writing. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, being an actor is just not really, you know, really what I want to do anymore. I mean, if somebody calls me up and says, Hey, will you be in a movie? Of course, sure, I would. But, um, you know, what I do most days is just come into my little tool shed and write. And and I kind of like that.
0: Yes, nice. And that segues very nicely. I'm all about the segues on this podcast, as I'm sure you've figured out by now, <laughs> nice. uh, to uh, our top three, which I always like to ask a top three. And I think for you, since you have so much experience writing all these short stories and now into Malibu Burning, do you have a top three favorite stories that you've you've told?
1: Uh, in terms of my personal stories?
0: either yeah either short stories or or articles that you've written uh just over your writing career
1: you know uh you know i i I, there's one you can see it on my website uh i think maybe you can i don't know i don't remember now because i think um you know i wrote this one story um it's called the king of pong and um i was a you know my dad's sport was ping pong And so, you know, he taught me to play ping pong at a very young age. And so I became a really good ping pong player and um, I've won tournaments playing ping pong. And um, so I wrote this story, The King of Pong. And it's interesting, a little bit of that story made it into Malibu Burning because in The King of Pong story, I talk about um, this Malibu table tennis club, which was started at the home of the actor Kevin Dillon from the uh, TV show Entourage. And a um, bunch of guys, we would gather at Kevin's, and we would battle it out um, on a table in his driveway, surrounded by his collection of classic cars, and and um, and a lot of times, you know, the the ping pong nights would turn into parties like entourage parties, you know and uh you know judd nelson would be there and patrick warburton would be there and nick nolte would be there and and uh miss hawaiian Tropic, circa 2005 would be jumping on kevin's trampoline in a bikini um <laughs> you know and so it was just like these surreal like entourage parties you know and um, and kevin kevin Dillon stayed behind to fight the fire And he, and just two or three other guys, saved most of his neighborhood from burning down. And there's a chapter in Malibu Burning called Johnny Drama, which was the name of Kevin's character in the Entourage series. Um, So Ping Pong makes a brief appearance in that Johnny Drama chapter, because I talk about that's how I met Kevin, um, was through this Malibu Table Tennis Club. And then of course, we kind of became friends and I heard his story about saving his community. And, and then I reached out and said, Hey, I got to interview you about that. And he was phenomenal. And, and, uh, and his chapter is one of my favorite chapters too. Cause you know, you think about it of all the people that can't afford to get burned in a wildfire, you know, a you know, professional actor is <laughs> gotta be at the top of the list, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, not, not going to be a lot of jobs if he gets burned. So that you know that, so that you know that, and again, I, that's one of the things I liked about the book is that, and that brings in the memoir aspect of it. Is you know because I'd had these experiences playing ping pong with Kevin and knew about you know some of that stuff. I'm able to get some of that into the beginning of the chapter, and that's where the humor comes in, right? So you're reading about Kevin Dillon and ping pong and these parties and girls in bikinis, and and you know hopefully the reader's like, wow, you know that. That's exactly like a scene from Entourage, right, because it kind of was, and then it segues into the fire and it gets, you know, very intense, you know, but but there's a little humor, there's a little fun part there, so the reader, you know, again, the reader is not just, you know, reading about these, you know, 200-foot flames and people, you know, in jeopardy and harm's way and people losing homes, you get to see, you know, the, all these other parts of the story and of Malibu, which are which are really fun and And one thing I did try to focus on in the book, um, because a lot of, uh, again, your listeners may not know this, and people, when they hear the word Malibu, they have these expectations that, you know, everybody in Malibu is rich or famous, or rich and famous. And that is one of the biggest misconceptions of Malibu. It really is a small town like any other, 13,000 people. population has changed very little over the last 30, 40 years. And most of the people that live in Malibu bought land and bought their homes in the 70s and 80s and early 90s when nobody wanted to live here because it was too far to commute to work. You know, it was too far to commute to Los Angeles and Beverly Hills and places where there are jobs because there really aren't any jobs out here by the beach. And you know, we forget now before the invention of the internet and cell phones and all of these things that you, know, you couldn't be that far away from your, you know, your work, um, whereas now people can work from home um, and, you know, and so people can theoretically live anywhere and, and work a job and make a living, but, you know, back, you know, you know, like I said, seventies, eighties and nineties, people couldn't do that. And so the only people that came and bought land out here were people that couldn't afford to buy land in LA proper. And so a lot of firefighters came out here. A lot of sheriffs came out here. A lot of teachers came out here. A lot of blue collar workers came out here and they bought homes, um, And so one of the things, again, people don't know, and in all of my chapters, most of the protagonists are these people, are these, you know, retired, some of them are retired now, teachers, firefighters, sheriffs, blue collar workers. Um, And you get to see, I think, uh, you know, a Malibu that most people don't don't know about, you know, and of course, yes, there's celebrities in the book. Obviously, I just talked about Kevin Dillon and you know, Sean Penn makes an appearance and Bob Dylan makes an appearance and Leonardo DiCaprio on a $25,000 bottle of wine makes an appearance. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, most of the stories are about the real people that live here.
0: That's great. I I'm tr- I'm, was trying to do some quick math on uh, how much I've spent on wine in my life. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know if it's a quarter of that.
1: <laughs> I know. Isn't that amazing? $25,000 bottle of wine. Uh, one of the it was a producer here in Malibu who was evacuating you know because of the fire, and he had this bottle to give to DiCaprio for his birthday, which was two days after the fire and he gave it to this private firefighter with the instructions of, hey you know the, the there were all these roadblocks once the fire started, there were roadblocks to prevent people from getting into Malibu. Um, you could still exit, but they wouldn't let anybody back in. Except, you know, firefighters could do that, and so this producer wanted this firefighter to drive out of Malibu, meet DiCaprio's, you know, team, give the twenty-five thousand dollar bottle of wine um, because, um, you know, he couldn't he couldn't get in and out himself. And so this private firefighter goes to meet DiCaprio's team with this $25,000 bottle of wine and they don't show up. And so for the, so then he has to go back because he's in Malibu to protect people's homes. So he has to go back. And so for the rest of the week, he's driving around with this $25,000 bottle of wine in his fire truck. And at one point he opened the door, the thing rolled out and landed on the ground. And by some miracle, it didn't break. Um, so, I think Leonardo got that bottle of wine. I just don't know if he knows how how close it was to being smashed,
0: yeah, hopefully he enjoyed it at least. I <laughs> hope he did.
1: Yeah. I bet its I bet it was a little smoky though
0: <laughs> that can add to the taste though adds to the it, flavor. Can, oh, it can can ah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so magical. I don't even know if that i'm I'll count that as a story. I don't even know where we are at the top three anymore. I feel like you've given us more than more than three, which is always welcome. <laughs> oh, well, thank you.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I, you know, um, and, you know, uh, you know, one of, and it, you know, as if this fire wasn't tragic enough, right? If this, this fire wasn't, you know, again, worst fire in LA history, one of the worst in California history, the fire started on the site of a secret nuclear meltdown. And that's something even most people in Los Angeles don't know that story, um, in 1959, there, was a, uh, there were these nuclear power plants in Simi Valley, which is just outside of Los Angeles, um, and one of the plants uh, had a partial meltdown, and to prevent the reactor from exploding, um, you know, the people that ran the plant intentionally vented radioactive materials into the atmosphere. The public was never told for 20 years. And I interviewed this professor who discovered, he and his students discovered um, this kind of cover up. And, um, you know, it basically started to come out about what had happened. And, um, long story short, that site to this day has never been cleaned up. Um, The radioactive materials, including cesium, strontium, plutonium 239, um, you know, the most deadly substances on Earth, are still there in the ground. And because the site has been abandoned for many, many years, you know, vegetation grows, chaparral grows, um, plants and trees grow, and now those plants and trees and chaparral have absorbed these radioactive materials, and so when the Woolsey Fire started on that site, the Edison equipment failed on that site, it lit those, that chaparral on fire, and then the winds and the fire blew all of those materials which had been somewhat contained on that 3,000-acre uh, abandoned site the wind and the fire blew all those materials all over anywhere downwind of the fire. And that's one of the real you know, tragedies. And we're probably not going to have an answer for some time as to, you know, what the effects are going to be on the public. But, you know, I interviewed scientists that said, yeah, for sure, those materials were blown off of that site and landed elsewhere. And so the question becomes, you know, could you potentially have plutonium in your backyard? Um, so that's a, that was another chapter. And that, a lot of that stuff I didn't know about. And as I found out more and more, it got kind of uglier and uglier. And, and you know, why, why hasn't, you know, here we live in California and we think, you know, most people in the U.S. think of California as this, you know, environmentally, you know, conscious state. And, you know, and here you have got what many consider to be the most contaminated site in the United States um, that has never been cleaned up is now the ignition point of the worst fire in Los Angeles history. So it's pretty much like worst case scenario.
0: Yeah, that's just, like, that almost doesn't sound real of how, just like how that right. could happen.
1: Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. And we, you know, we've had, uh, we had Governor, uh, Jerry, you know, Democratic Governor Jerry Brown, he did not clean up the site. Um, and I think he regretted it after the fire. He was quoted as saying, um, you know, we, we need to get this site cleaned up. I think that in, you know, all of their, you know decision making about costs you, they just nobody had ever thought like well what would happen if a fire started here you know i mean just it just was never in any you know they're like well you know we know these materials are here in the ground there was a 40 million dollar epa study in 2012 that verified astronomical levels uh, of these uh, radioactive materials in 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 the ground there but they figured oh well you know they're they're here you know and as long as people aren't going on to that site which nobody goes there um there's nothing there, you know. They figure, well, you know, as long as nobody goes there, it's going to be okay. And of course, now with this fire, that was not the case. And um, the site is owned by Boeing. Boeing has never cleaned it up. Um, state of California is not cleaned it up. U.S. Department of Energy hasn't cleaned it up, even though all of those organizations and entities signed uh, commitments to do so by 2017. And yet, on the day of the Woolsey Fire, uh, November last year, 2018, the cleanup hadn't even
0: started. Wow. Well, yeah. hopefully uh, and- this, this gets some, some people into action then
1: yeah and and the the, that story that i'm telling now about this facility the santa susana field laboratory in simi valley um los angeles magazine is excerpting um part of that chapter and um publishing it in the december issue um and they're calling the article the hot zone so you know your your listeners if they're interested um you know, they can kind of take a look at that too. Um, it's a shorter version, obviously, than the, than the chapter in the book. I think the chapter in the book is better because Bob Dylan is in the full version and in the <laughs> LA magazine, they, they, they cut Mr. Dylan out
0: of the story. Just get Jacob Dylan in the short version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but, um, yeah, it's a really disturbing story and it's, it's, it is starting to get some traction in Los Angeles. Kim Kardashian, Um, regardless of what you think of Kim Kardashian, we we can all agree she's got a big social media presence. She's got a lot of followers, and she lives in the Hidden Hills area which is right downwind of this this Santa Susana field laboratory where the materials are are still in the ground and she had no idea she had no idea like most people in Los Angeles they had no idea that they were living with these radioactive materials so close and then after the fire they had no idea that these materials could now be in their backyards and so she and her sister went to protest um, at the 60th anniversary of the nuclear meltdown Um, And she was tweeting about the importance of getting this site cleaned up once and for all so that, um, you know, these materials, you know, they don't go away in our lifetimes. And and if they end up in your backyard, you know, it may be years before, you know, or somebody your neighbor knows when somebody develops some odd cancer or two or three people, you know, usually what happens is you get these cancer clusters where there are four or five extremely rare cancers in a very, very um, close area. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, wait, wait a second. What, how, how, and then, and and unfortunately, you know, if we find that in five, seven, 10 years, uh, it's going to be as a result of the Woolsey fire.
0: Uh, so Los Angeles magazine to, to read the condensed version of yes. that chapter. And then if people want to buy Malibu burning or want to learn more about you, check out some of your other writing, where can they find you?
1: Sure. Well, um, of course, the book is available on, you know, with all major retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple Books. It's in bookstores. Um, if you go to your bookstore and they don't have it, ask them to carry it, uh, please, um, because, you know, some places around the country, you know, might not have it. Um, but I think, you know, with all of the news about California wildfires, um, people um, are really interested to try to understand like, well, wait a second, what's, what's going on there? You know, I mean, is California falling apart and why are they having these fires and what are they doing to prevent all these fires? And what's it like to be in a fire? And, and so that was something as I really wanted to take readers inside what it's like to be in a fire. Um, and if you're interested in, in some of my other stuff, um, you want to see a picture of my Star Trek card, you can go to my website, com. Awesome.
0: And again, I, I, can't stress to my listeners enough i think you do a great job of taking us kind of into the action and getting all these great stories and so would highly recommend everyone check out malibu burning
1: oh well thank you Joe. i really appreciate it
0: thank you robert this was fantastic and i you know what we've had such fun with star trek why not end with a star trek joke <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, just not a trivia question, please. No, no trivia. This is about as basic as my Star Trek knowledge gets, uh, or as advanced, I should say. Uh, but what are eyeglasses called on Vulcan? Spockticles. Good afternoon, people.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it.